Lesson number one, listen to the patient. If the first rule of treatment is do no harm, the first words of diagnosis ought to be, listen to the patient. We all know there can be no effective treatment until a correct diagnosis is made. I don't know how many teachers have told me over and over again, listen to the patient and they will tell you the diagnosis. However, many times I see evidence that this is not done well or even attempted. Patients tell me that the doctors they have seen have not listened to them, or brushed them aside, don't listen to their concerns. They seem to have their own agenda, wholly different than the person in front of them. Studies have shown that doctors routinely interrupt patients in less than 20 seconds with questions or comments that serve to confuse and not clarify the condition. I've learned that by listening careful, carefully to the patient, I can learn a lot more than any test. If I hear the patient and I understand their story, then my questions can be more targeted, the tests I order more focused. The treatment is often correctly tailored and effective. I learned this lesson early in my career and it's been repeated many times since. I started practicing family medicine in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio in July 1985, 36 years ago. One of the first Sundays that I was on call, my associate called me to ask me to make a house call on a VIP, a very important patient. This was someone, this patient, who I knew very well, but actually terrified me in my youth. This was the cantor who led the singing group that I had sung with for three years between the ages of 11 and 14 with an iron hand. He'd expected a lot of us, and he molded 50 mediocre voices into a top-notch synagogue chorale that had toured Israel and much of the Midwest. Let me tell you about the case. I'll call him Cantor K. He was a 40-year-old white male who was healthy, except for mild anxiety. His anxiety would get worse every year before the High Holy Days when he was in front of the largest crowds of the year. Four days before Yom Kippur, he awoke with a severe pain in his chest. He rushed to his family doctor, my partner, who did a full workup. He did an EKG, which was normal. He ordered a, a stress test stat, which was also normal. He sent the patient home, but the patient wasn't feeling any better. And two days later, he was beside himself because every time he tried to sing, the pain was like a knife. Nothing could be more frightening to a cantor two days before Yom Kippur. It was Sunday, and who are you going to call? Yep, the junior partner, that was me, of course. Here I was, fresh from residency, the former student of the demanding cantor, not normally afraid of a house call. It was 36 years ago, and I remember it like it was last week. His wife, the sweet and soft-spoken teacher, met me at the door. She ushered me into his private study, surrounded by his sacred books, his sacraments, the mahogany shelves I can still smell. He sat and he asked me some open-ended questions. I asked him some open-ended questions. Tell me, how did the pain start? Well, two days ago, I just woke up with it, a terrible pain in the middle of my chest. We traded short questions and answers. He had never had a pain like this before. He had no associated symptoms, no nausea, no shortness of breath, no sweating, no pain down the arm. There was no increased pain with walking, but the pain did worsen if he tried to sing, which terrified him. What am I going to do? It's two days before Kol Nidre, the famous Yom Kippur plaintive liturgy, and I can't sing. This is my worst nightmare. 
Okay, I said. Hang in there. Let's take a step back. The night before, when you went to bed, what did you feel? Did you feel fine? He said, yes, I felt fine, but I had a scratchy throat. Did you take anything for your throat? Sheepishly, he said, well, I was so afraid of getting sick, I took an antibiotic. What was it called? Doxycycline. Did you take it with a full glass of water? No, I never take my pills with water. I swallowed it dry. What did you do then? I went right to bed. This patient had just told me the diagnosis. All medications can cause side effects. Some drugs can irritate the esophagus. The number one drug that causes esophageal ulceration is none other than doxycycline. The best way to get an ulceration is to take the medication dry and lay down. That's just what this patient did. The pill sits in the esophagus all night and it causes an ulceration. In his anxiety to stay healthy, the cantor had inadvertently given himself an esophageal ulceration. He'd also given me enough information to make a correct diagnosis. I didn't need an upper GI, I didn't need an EGD, because his answers to a few simple questions had given me all the information I needed to help him. Back then, there was no Prilosec, there was no Pepsid, uh, but there was Tagamet, and I started him on Tagamet to lower his stomach acid, and I asked him to make a caraphate slurry to coat the ulcer before each meal and at bedtime. I prayed there was enough time in the next two days to heal this before the big day uh, and his big singing event occurred. I was proud of this diagnosis, uh, and I was convinced I was correct, but I was not sure my treatment was going to be effective in time for Kol Nidre services. So I decided to attend his synagogue instead of my own to see if the fruits of my labor would work. And uh, that night, I was excited to see he bounded on the bima. He looked his usual robust self. He was much better looking than he had been a few days earlier. He was no longer in pain. When he sang that night, his voice had never sounded sweeter to me. The pathos was deeper. The intonation was stronger. I smiled to myself, and I had to repent for the sin of pride that night, but I also marveled at what I had learned. I listened to him, and he had given me the diagnosis. Uh, as I told students being inducted to the Alpha Omega Alpha, the Honor Medical Society, in 2009, part of listening to the patient is more than receiving information. It's showing that you care and giving your full attention. What good lovers... And skilled politicians know is how to focus on another like a laser beam. Whether you're looking for lover votes or just building a therapeutic relationship, active, attentive listening is absolutely essential. Could this be why after residency they call you an attending physician? This is how you understand your patient, how you build trust, and how you build, plan your care. Because if your patient does not trust you, nothing else matters as they will not respect your opinion or listen to your advice. Another part of listening to the patient is also listening to the family and friends. They can also supplement you with some very valuable information. Let me give you another example. In 1990, a 17-year-old girl came to see me in the office with her mother complaining of an unusual rash. 
not immediately recognizing the condition, I asked the mom what she thought it was. I think it's measles. That would have been easy to discount because measles was even rare back then. Why do you think it's measles? Well, she visited a friend at Ohio State last weekend and she was diagnosed with the first case of measles in the state. And it looked just like this. Well, that's a pretty good reason. So I consulted a derm text and sure enough, she had it down, looked just like measles, right down to the copelic spots in her inner cheek. The state had us confirm it with titers in the blood and that was only the second confirmed case of measles that year and only the second case that I'd ever recognized personally. Thank goodness I had asked mom for her insight. I enjoy listening to other people. It's a natural curiosity that I consider a gift that I take after my mother, who, quote, never met a stranger, end quote. Every person has a story, something to teach. The key is to pay attention.